2: and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
0: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is
1: Australia? Please explain.
2: Life is changing in Australia. Because the pub is shut.
1: Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare.
2: Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination.
0: The authority is total, and I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg.
1: Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now. Not ever.
0: You're a classic
1: space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should
2: be ashamed of yourselves.
0: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good.
2: (laughs) Hello, Mark Kenny here with a slightly later than usual democracy sausage delayed by the federal budget. And what a budget it was. I guess you could say a typical Labour budget crafted during a downturn. Keynesian, front-footed, focused on the immediate term. But of course, this is not a Labour government and on many of the figures, such as employment, we're no longer in a downturn either. Curiouser and curiouser. With me to discuss this strange set of circumstances are two of the best, Professor Miranda Stewart and Professor John Hewson. Miranda Stewart is Professor of Law at Melbourne University Law School and a fellow at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute and the College of Asia-Pacific at ANU. And John Houston is Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU, and he's an adjunct professor at several other universities, as well as having been, of course, Leader of the Opposition in the 1990s. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage to you both. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. So, John Houston, uh, you heard my characterisation there. It's a bit glib, I suppose, uh, calling it, you know, Keynesian. There, there there, are some people saying, I noticed Ross Gittin saying, there's, there's not as big spending as it might look. Um But but give us your overall impression of the budget uh, first, and I'll get Miranda to do the same after that.
0: Look, I think it's an election budget on steroids, to be honest. I mean, they have gone very carefully down a list of interests and issues and so on, perhaps marginal seats even, that they need to tick a box in, and they've done that. To a, a pretty effective way, I think. And, uh, although they've got a mixed reaction from some of those constituencies, I think they've been seen to have addressed an issue in a particular area like women or childcare or aged or so on. And, um, and that's what they're relying on now to carry them through the, the, um, next election. Uh, some debate as to whether it'll be late this year or early next year, but, Clearly, within the next uh, nine months or so, 12 months, it definitely will take place.
2: Yeah, I mean, it has to, has to take place essentially within 12 months. So May, the May really is that, the deadline. I think yeah. May
0: 21, I think, is the deadline. So, yes, it has to, has to take place. And uh, they're making a lot of the fact that uh, in their slogan terms, it's to secure the recovery. But there's nothing much in the budget that will sustain that recovery. And so you'll get past the next election by having secured your electoral future. But then, of course, the big issues will come as some of these expending initiatives which are temporary will actually end or have to end. And, uh, of course, where's the, where's the boost in national productivity that's going to sustain growth into the medium term? And so I think um, there's a fair bit of complacency about that in this budget. But uh, when I look at the economic forecasts, I, you know they're, they're ambitious. Uh, The big pickup, uh, the sustained strength of consumer spending and the very big pickup in business investment, particularly non-mining business investment, isn't supported by the data as far as I can see. And the consumer side, real wages stay negative or flat and you've got a very big boost uh, in consumer spending. And I think a lot of the investment allowances that were already there Okay, they're being extended, but uh, to a large extent, they've already ta- been taken advantage of. So uh, it's hard to see that you'll suddenly get this big boost in a couple of years' time into business investment, mining, and non-mining investment.
2: Hmm. Miranda, what was your impression?
1: So uh, it is interesting to hear you talk about uh, sides of politics and and whether the budget is what we might think of as a a, a coalition uh, budget. It, it, it's um. It's perhaps a, a bit of a throwback to uh, earlier uh, in the 20th century uh, liberal budgets, uh, which were sort of more nation building in their, in their narrative involving bigger social spending. Um, I, I'm inclined to uh, agree with John about the economic fundamentals. I guess one of the structural things that's interesting is um, that quite a lot of the, 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 the tax measures or, or big sort of economic measures are these sort of still temporary stimulus. Um we've got the extension of carry back losses, we've got uh the, the, the extension for one year already announced of the lower middle income tax offset. Uh, these things are gonna to come to uh, an end their cash flow measures it's quite hard to see what happens next with those and and to see whether the government uh, or the next government would would roll them back uh, the bigger ticket items are the the ones with longer term uh, agenda so social policy type aspects aged care disability child care uh, these are good things to invest in but they're not uh, in a sense funded in the longer term or the funding is going to be reliant on uh, that economic growth which will kick in the tax revenues into the future. So, they're big, if you like, current expenditure type items, uh, annual recurrent expenditure items that are necessary for, for the long term uh, but do have to be financed in the longer term.
2: It's interesting, isn't it, that those things you mentioned, uh, childcare, aged care uh, in particular, they, they are actually things that uh, are sort of baked into the budget. And we, we've had also an increase in the uh, in the unemployment rate, modest in the unemployment uh, benefit, um, job seeker, um, $50 a fortnight. It's modest, but nonetheless, all of those three things, uh, childcare, aged care and the unemployment benefit, are things that are now part of the, the the cost structure going forward, which is which is a difference from where the government was. It had been maintaining this argument for a, a good deal of time now that it wasn't going to do anything that would sort of you know, as they, in, to use the terminology they used, which would bake in costs into the budget. Uh, they've they've relented on that. It's almost like they've said, right, well, we're not going to get near surplus, so in for a penny, in for a pound, and they've they've. You know, uh, forsaken those sort of things.
0: They are all increases in the structural deficit. And there used to be a principle that both sides of politics agreed with, and that is that um, you shouldn't fund recurrent expenditure, which is what we're talking about, yeah. on debt. Uh, you certainly should fund that out of the basic tax revenue of the of the um, of the budget itself. Uh, it's all right to do infrastructure spending uh, on debt because, you know, wisely invested, it does pay for itself. It does, yeah. Um, Service the debt and repay the debt, but uh, certainly recurrent expenditure in those areas um, is uh, certainly structural in terms of the future budgets. And in each of those cases, if we look back at our history, whether it's NDIS or whether it's uh, childcare, whether it's aged care, the numbers tend to blow out. You know, they tend to get bigger as time goes on, even yeah. with uh, even with pretty tight eligibility criteria specified. They still seem to blow out. Yeah. Look at the NDIS costs, for example, today compared to what they were said to be at the yeah. start.
2: and and I should have mentioned NDIS as well because there's what thirteen billion dollars mm. extra going into that as well. So that's and that, and, and that's for
0: four hundred and fifty thousand disabled people. Yeah. You know, it's a large amount of money going into that, and the numbers show that by. Uh, I think in a couple of years' time it's going to cost more to the budget than Medicare. Yeah. And, uh, we, you we, and the-
2: Medicare, of course, is funded to, at least in part by a levy, that's whereas right. the government has not gone down the levy path with, with the NDIS.
0: And that's right. And if you add the disability pensions on top of the cost of the NDIS, you're rivalling the aged care. um, the age pension as a cost. Right. So these are big structural changes that are inherent in this budget. It's a very big shift, I think, that, uh, you know, I know they say they put ideology aside, but this is a very significant shift in sort of what was accepted as good budget practice.
1: It's interesting to think about that just just to follow up that um, it, it perhaps it could be that in Australia's history only uh, only a more conservative government can 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 do those sorts of directional shifts Dead uh, or at least at the moment and um, you have to I, I think we do have to unpack some of those so disability care and aged care of course in, a, in an aging population uh, the, these numbers are structural and they will go up but of mm. course as a society we do have to address this Problem and so, in my view, it's a positive sign to see that change in this budget. You know, we could quibble about the specific amounts in the current year and the next two years, but this is policy for the next three decades, really. Um, the The childcare investment, I do think we need to think about that differently. We've got de- declining fertility, less migration at the moment rather heroic assumptions about renewed migration in the next couple of years opening up the borders. Um, but that childcare investment is an investment in actually productivity and and both public and private incomes over the coming decades. Uh, and so it's sort of a reset. And I guess what the budget is struggling with a bit is those longer term goals, but but still trying to address all its vested interests perhaps as as John referred to. to yeah, sorry, I think that's
0: right. I mean if, if you look at what we're doing in aged care and child care and disability care and so on, a lot of it's catch-up. A lot of it is the fact that successive governments over decades let these issues drift, kick them down the road, and the child care, so the aged care one, is very instructive if you look at what the Royal Commission actually says. And they're talking in terms of ten or more billions per year.
2: Yes, that's right, and over it's over five to, years to get right.
0: reform. And we're looking at eight at seventeen point seven billion over four year, over five years, I should yeah. say. So it's only a beginning in terms of what was said to be by an independent review required to fix that area. And we know that uh, in that process, there's a lot of detail to be put in place, particularly the regulatory structures, particularly making sure that people do get, that the staff get the right training and that uh, they're available for the right periods of time and they have the right equipment support and, and so on. Now, these are big issues that take a lot of time to structurally put in place. So, you can expect that there'll be more demands, I think, on aged care in the future. This is just a start. Uh, I agree with Miranda's comment about child care. I mean, it's a family issue, not so much a woman's issue, although it gets painted heavily as a woman's issue. But it, it is recognising the reality of the flexibility required in families today and the choices that people have to make. Mm. And you're okay, all they're doing in child care is increasing the amounts in the present system. Whereas I think the present system's got a lot of structural weaknesses that should have been addressed, still have those very high, you know, marginal tax rates as people move to another day of employment and so on. None of those structural issues are being addressed. And I was disappointed personally that that wasn't linked to the early education. And so we work towards a position of universal childcare and early education up to say the age of five for children. Uh, and okay, that will cost uh, a fair bit of money. But I think the Grattan Institute has estimated how many billions of dollars in growth that will generate if you do it properly. So that's a structural issue that didn't get answered, (laughs) that could have been answered. Uh, Yet uh, in the aged care sector, we are starting with a structural issue that we're trying to move towards and give them credit for actually beginning that. Well, they sort of cares. had no choice, didn't they? I mean, yeah.
2: you know, this, this government's well, got Morrison. Was overwhelming. <laughs> they and they commissioned it, and mm. Scott Morrison commissioned the Aged Care Royal Commission. It recommended, as you say, sort of ten billion plus a year extra in funding. I think this works out to Ross Kitten's was saying in the Herald today, um, more like about three and a half billion dollars a year over a, you know, over a finite period. Um. So he he says that's not really you know the 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 scandals will continue. It's more of Absolutely. a major patch up than a than actually an a lot
0: of the spending doesn't kick in until next year. Right. You know, so it doesn't occur in this uh, in the twenty sorry, twenty one twenty two financial year. It begins uh, the middle of next year. In, in H
2: K. You mean, or generally? Generally, yeah.
0: A lot of the expenditure is actually loaded beyond. Uh, the well, child year, care middle of particularly. next year. Yeah. And, uh, so, so it could uh,
1: even be a post-election expenditure. Well, that's it. <laughs> and
0: that, so they push those out consciously beyond an election. Okay, they're saying we're not going to talk about budget repair, but we're also not going to create a, a really big problem for ourselves. A lot of that spending is beyond the middle of next year, middle of next calendar year. So in those terms, I mean, they've been cautious but also I think quite complacent because those issues are not going to go away. I mean the aged care abuses and excesses will be the sort of Mm. a daily news fest between now and the middle of next year for sure. Yeah. Until we start to see real progress in that area. And as I say, after decades of neglect and 20 odd independent reviews and nothing done, uh, you know, it's going to be there as an issue for I think years, maybe as Romandis says, decades to come.
2: Yeah. Um, one of you mentioned i can't remember which mentioned the loss carry back and uh, business yeah. investment uh, you know the, these uh, tax breaks um and i guess there's also what the low and middle income tax offset uh one off payment um, going back to the the point about whether this is a pre-election budget which it certainly looks like it i mean I guess that raises – we, we, we can't know that for sure. I mean, they may do a sort of a mini-budget or some sort of bring the budget forward next year and then go straight into an election that's been done before and done successfully. If things go
0: bad, they will, won't they?
2: Yeah, or if things are going very well, you know, you might just see that spring election. I mean, it sort of um, – it, it kind of adds up, at least in political arithmetic. And I guess another way of looking at it is to say, well, you can't imagine them withdrawing these things prior to an election –
1: yeah, that's what I mean by the Lamito. Uh, uh, this was a flaw in the design of the Stage 1, Stage 2, Stage 3 tax cut plan that they previously legislated. So the middle of that plan was delivery of this tax offset originally only for one year Mm. uh, and then an assumption that it would be withdrawn and then that the stage stage three cut would would actually be be loaded more towards the top end of the spectrum the income distribution um COVID of course then meant well we'll we'll extend that for one year and now uh, people have realised that actually it's rather attractive, we'd like to hang on to it, <laughs> we'll extend it for another year. It is pretty hard to see any uh, government going back on that now, which does suggest the tax rate structure is going to need uh, some some examination because it's a very peculiar and complicated way to deliver that little bit of extra tax cut to low and middle income earners. Uh, just on tax reform, I mean, obviously it's not a tax reform budget and John no. would agree with me. I think mm. that, uh, you know, no government is going to be trying to do tax reform. There are a couple of things buried in it, though, that uh, indicate a kind of the inevitability of a change in business taxation. Um, One of those is the patent box. Um, It's rather targeted at the moment, but essentially what, what the patent box does is deliver a low corporate tax rate, 17%, nearly half of what the current rate is for large corporates, uh, to intangible income, that is intellectual property income, patent income in the medical and the biotech sector. Um, You know, that's just responding to global competitive pressure. Uh, Intangibles and medical research patents, these are highly mobile. The rest of the world, the US has a, a patent box. Most European countries have low tax rates on intangible income. So we're not cutting the corporate tax rate, but actually we are. For mobile income, and relying on keeping on getting that revenue coming in from iron ore uh, in order to to fund that,
0: and that'll spread though to a much wider concept of technology, won't it? Not yeah, just it biomedical. will. I think
1: in future, it's it inevitable. Must. In- it must
2: for the same competitive pressure reasons, presumably. Absolutely, yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely. And you know what's so. I- you know a patent box that has to be policed it has to be administered it's it's potentially quite complex to to administer the tax office is going to be really worried about uh, avoidance and planning using this low tax rate Uh, so those are all all problems with it Um, it's not framed in the context of any broader business or corporate tax policy you know what should Australia's corporate tax look like in the future in terms of the industrial sectors, mining sectors, manufacturing and digital. So so that narrative is missing for me.
0: Yeah, And it's happening at the same time as where they haven't addressed the fact that a lot of large multinationals don't pay or pay very little tax or no tax in Australia and that is an electorally very sensitive area now. So you're offering tax concessions over and above what is already a, an unsustainable, I think, corporate tax
2: system. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable
1: with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
2: Welcome back. We were talking about the patent box just before the break, um, I guess very few people will be familiar exactly with how they work. I I assume, Miranda, it doesn't have a significant cost to the budget, this uh, surrendering of some level of corporate tax for this specific class of uh, investor.
1: I don't think as currently designed it does. There's no detail in the budget, though, about what this is going to look like. Yeah, I couldn't Uh, find anything. uh, No, and uh, my guess is that – it will grow. I think John John's right. It's either it's so narrow and targeted and tightly controlled that it doesn't really do the policy goal it's supposed to achieve, or it inevitably is going to have to uh, become more costly and expansive. Uh, essentially, any sort of intellectual property income, you know, if you rather than developing a patent in Australia, will do it in a lower tax jurisdiction. Um, the irony, with in terms of multinationals <laughs> that John John raised, the large digital companies is that uh, you know, for Google, for example, we deliver the R and D tax subsidy with the one hand, so that we keep our you know, engineers in, in Sydney doing some doing some algorithm engineering. Um, on the other hand, of course, um, we we don't they don't pay much uh, corporate tax at all. Uh, and this is inevitable with the uh, the mobile intangible sort of sector. That's where the value is. Uh, so I think we need to just be explicit and understand that policy Complexity.
2: So, John um, Miranda makes the point that uh, you know there's not a lot of detail in the budget around this thing. That's not all that new. I mean, that's politics in a way. And one of the things Labor was saying before the budget came out was, "Don't worry about the announcement. Worry about the delivery." Mm. We had a lot of uh, heat and light and excitement around the JobMaker initiative at the last budget, which you know happily was only about six months ago in October. Um, Uh, you know, this was that plan that was going to subsidise employers a certain amount to take on 30-year-olds or 35-year-olds, people under 35 or under Mm. 30, um, slightly differential rate. Uh, It was going to create, I don't know, multiple thousands of jobs. 450,000. That's that's what it was. (laughs) Uh, I think it created something in the order of about 1,000 jobs. It's been highly problematic. So I suppose, you know, not putting it in the same category as the patent box, but budgets do have a lot of announcements in them, a lot of things in them that you might be looking for a, a sort of a political dividend for the announcement as much as uh, as much as at having any real tangible effect on the overall picture.
0: Yeah, the government strategy is still the big announcement, and um, not too much follow up. I go back to the original statement that Morrison made to the public service when he took over where he surprised a lot of people by saying, your job is just service delivery. Mm. Our job is to develop the policy that you then deliver. And that's fine, but tell us the detail of that policy. (laughs) Don't just announce it, get the benefit of the announcement. And then leave it to us to actually try and put the meat on the bones to make that work. And you see a lot of that in these in mm. these programs. And I noticed the prime minister's response in question time yesterday when he was asked about that particular job maker program. He said he didn't admit that it had failed. He just said, "Look, I've tried a whole lot of programs, and my bottom line is getting the jobs, and I don't care how we get them and what program we get them through." <laughs> which is a nice rationalisation for the fact that some of them don't work. Uh, but um, you know, it goes back to the point that people are going to be increasingly. Looking for the detail of these decisions,
2: Mm.
0: and the aged care sector will climb all over these decisions now, and the childcare sector is to see how they'll actually be implemented. So the implementation becomes at least as important as the announcement. Although in political terms, it's just the announcement. Tomorrow we'll move to another location. We'll talk about something else. We'll announce something else. You know?
2: Yes. Uh, Still cynical. That's true. But I I couldn't help but. Think uh, you know much to Labor's chagrin that that um, when when you start saying things like that, don't worry about the announcement. It, mm. It's about the delivery. It's it is a kind of a tacit acknowledgement that you're you're facing a, a good news budget, a budget of oh, yeah. you know with a lot in it, uh, with the with the sort of strings of restraint have been loosed, and and uh, there were quite a few winners. In
0: Political terms, they've taken a lot of what otherwise would have been a Labor budget.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and there's so it's very difficult services.
0: to be a leader of the opposition right now uh, and come up with. some Something that you know you can talk about longer term and growing national productivity and uh, putting in place sustaining a recovery, just not securing it. This sort of thing. But uh, to the average person listening to that, to say, "Yeah, but I'm looking at how much I got last night, or how much I expect to get," and uh, it becomes a, you know, a very difficult set of circumstances. And Morrison is clever at cementing his political position. He's way ahead in the polls personally, mm. not so much in party terms, but personally, and he's building on that. And I think uh, that's what he's hoping this budget will carry him through the next election.
2: Yeah, um, Peter Hatch told the story last night on on ABC coverage uh, about when the Treasurer was in the the City Morning Herald office and th- they said they'd all been looking around, looking through the budget, trying to find some cuts. Uh, where were the cuts? They couldn't find any. And Frydenberg's response was... Um, this is a recovery budget. They yes, didn't <laughs> seek to sort of point out any particular cuts, which is just an amazing uh, change of atmosphere, really, from a government that – the same party that has been continuously in power since, of course, warning of the debt and deficit disaster, That that budget in 2014 where they proudly boasted of ripping $80 billion out of health and education – um, you know, to get the budget back into shape. Uh, and uh, and now it just doesn't seem to be the priority. And, in fact, there's even a recognition in the budget papers that, or the argument is put there, that, that debt, we know, which is heading towards nearly a trillion dollars uh, net debt by 2025 on, on the budget projections, uh, there's an argument in the budget papers saying that because debt as a proportion of the growing economy is declining, there's no longer quite the demand for surplus budgets that they can run deficit budgets in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, as long as you can keep the economy growing and some of those growth of numbers, I think, are quite optimistic. But the debt problem for Australia is not just federal government debt. Add the state government debt. Yeah. Look at it in the context of record levels of household debt and corporate debt. We have a very significant long-term debt problem, which at some point will be addressed. And, uh, you know, they don't need to talk about it now, perhaps. Addressed
2: by someone else.
0: Yeah. On your point last (laughs) night in in the ABC, I was surprised the ABC wasn't pointing out that they were a cut. Right. Their their, their support is still being cut. Uh, You know, there are no conspicuous cuts, no announced cuts, and no what new tax increases are there.
1: Not too many new uh, taxes. No, no, yeah. they insist it's not a taxing budget. I, I don't think they'd want to do that. I might point out that the uni- universities, uh, I wouldn't say universities are, are, are a cut, but they're certainly not an expansion except in some targeted areas of research support. Um, although there will be a, a significant increase in the numbers of university students in domestic uh, uh, coming up because we've got a little generational blip coming up in the next few years. Mm. So we will need more domestic university places and actually that is one reason why uh, the HECS uh, you know, help uh, reform that was done a year or two ago to sort of reorient uh, university funding in dom- for domestic students.
0: I think they announced 30,000, didn't they, as a, as, a, as a likely increase? I didn't look at the time period over. But there's which
1: a bit of a was... blip coming forward yeah. of sort of university age, tertiary age uh, young people uh, coming up in the next five years. Um, in terms of the, the costs and, and benefits, I was just looking at the numbers. And yeah, look, the patent box is estimated only to cost 100 million in a couple of years' time. So mm. it's, it's nothing really. Uh, just to give you, to put that in context, uh, the limito for one year is 7.4 billion. Yeah, uh, in terms of the fiscal cost and the the full expensing of in business investment, which was previously announced again, it's been extended by a year. is 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 estimated to be nearly eleven billion in twenty three twenty four. Again, it's front it's, it goes into the future, as John said. It's it's not the cost coming up in the current year, so the budget books are going to look all right you know, in this debt context in the next year or two, it's some of the bigger expenses are, are in the out years.
2: Well, they're the sort of things you withdraw in the first year of a, a new term rather than the third year of the current term. Mm, it's yeah. one of those golly gosh
0: moments. Look, we can't actually afford this. <laughs> <Yeah, it's, laughs>
2: what well, you know, right. normally you don't get your golly gosh moments except <laughs> when you've had a change of parties where they say, well, we've had a look at the books and, and it's much worse than we thought and we're going to have to sort of junk certain priorities. But yeah,
0: that's a novelty. They'll have to do it to themselves. Instead. Yeah, that's, <laughs> assuming
2: that. They win, uh, win, which, so which at the moment it, it, they're certainly looking in good place to, to do. What do you think, Miranda, it means for stage three tax cuts? You mentioned them earlier for the top end. They are very expensive. They are baked in expenditure against the budget. Uh, the government yesterday, uh, I believe the Treasurer and Finance Minister, confirmed that they remain a priority. Uh, then They're legislated but not yet delivered.
1: Yeah, they're legislated. I mean, if, if nothing happens, they they will kick in in that 24-25 year. Look, the government's been very consistent on that and unless there's a change of government and a, a Labor Party that was, um, you'd have to say, brave enough to take on that sort of upper middle uh, end of the 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 distribution, I suspect they're here to stay. Um, Many tax economists would say it's not a bad thing to flatten the tax rate uh, structure overall, but it does come at a large fiscal cost. uh, And in my view, probably the economics don't don't stack up, but I suspect that they're here permanently. So I'm more concerned about the lower middle uh, and, and what's going to happen for, for those households. Uh, ironically, childcare delivery, uh, you know, a bigger childcare delivery is the equivalent of, ex- of extending a tax cut to, to lower middle families. I mean, because that's such a, a high uh, net cost for them, uh, that if we relieve them of that expenditure, that they're in a much better uh, economic position and they might have more income coming in. Um, I thought it might be interesting. I don't know uh, whether you've noticed a couple of other things that I noticed in the budget about this issue of longer term policy structural change versus current year, you know, delivering something in the current year. The The government did include the women's budget statement again, which is a sort of a structural budget document hmm. which had been removed in 2014 by tony abbott it's an interesting question why do we even need such a thing you know the budget should be for for all individuals uh, in my view, it is a good thing structurally because it brings in women as individuals become more visible uh, yeah. in terms of improving budget policy. Uh, it's a bit descriptive, but let's hope that the, that the government continues with that in the future and, and, and we see some more, some more targets. We can
2: certainly see a pretty direct political relationship between the uh, manifestation of this rather slender volume, it must be said, and, and uh, you could have a debate about whether things like childcare should be Included within it, I mean, you know, there, there are arguments on both sides of that because we know, of course, women do carry the major burden of child care and of trying to balance work and. And so forth. Whether we like that or not, that is a, a fact that that women deal with uh, in with their engagement in in the economy. But nonetheless, you know, childcare is a is a you know is a um, it's really a family. A, it's also. a family issue and it's an economy issue. Uh, but what's uh,
1: ironic about that is that to make that visible, you have you have to actually point out the individuals uh, who benefit or or, or bear I, I agree, burden. but
2: I think there's also a, a political exigency there as a result of the horror start to the year that the government has had in the women's space. I mean, it's. The whole question of women's involvement in politics, women's treatment, uh, you know, serious allegations of, of abuse and the like. Um, uh, you know, all of these things have been very poorly handled, I think cumbersomely handled by the government up until now. So I'm not all that surprised that there's an emphasis on this now. And there's some
0: important inconsistencies here. I mean, they've put some money into, um, into um, domestic violence and, and so on, but at the same time, uh, they're abolishing the family court. Hmm. And and you know I think to myself you know, there was an opportunity to actually build a strain of the legal system that focuses more heavily on these issues and more effectively on these issues hmm. as an extension perhaps of the family court but now it's all jumbled in and it's uh, yeah we'll have to wait to see over time how that unfolds and how it works. Because a lot of the domestic violence issues are difficult to deal with.
2: Well, there's been a narrative running. You know, That's justice right. Process. That's right. And there's been a fairly strong narrative running on the on the on the right, particularly on the extreme right and mm. the kind of Hanson right about the 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 family court being mm. biased toward women and so forth. The, mm. uh, one wonders whether there, you know some of that. Uh, um, There's a argument. bit of a
1: political minefield there for the government, I think, isn't there? It, it has is, to yeah. tread between uh, some rather strong ideological positions. I mean, on one view, it's it seems extraordinary that 50 years after the seven, second wave feminism of the 70s, we still need to advocate just for 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 women to live free of male violence, Uh, I guess the point about the women's budget statement that's worth making is that uh, some of the debate seems to be, well, this is just one budget for women and then let's get back to business as usual (laughs) next year. (laughs) And the point I'd be making is that a gender analysis, a gender analysis of the impact of expenditure taxing and policy on women and men, young people and old people, Mm. this is actually essential for good budgeting. Going yeah, forward, yeah. the other thing, though, I think where the budget does fall down, can, a bit can I just
2: stop you there, Miranda, just for yeah. a sec, just to interrupt, just to make one point. I understand there's also a cut, which is you know a, a small quantum in total, but a, a, you know of some millions of dollars, seven million or some sort of order like that, of the office of women budget. That uh, oh, this that may so have escaped a lot of people. I noticed Sorry, in the um... discussion of this on Twitter. Well, we shouldn't last
0: night. worry because we've got a prime minister for women now.
2: Yeah, that's right. And the prime minister for women has not. <laughs> Which I, think... I
0: thought it was just an insane comment, but well, anyway, <laughs> it,
2: it, it was. It, it, it's what happens when you have a marketing genius as the prime minister, and occasionally, uh, you know, they don't market test the you know the idea properly, and uh, you could tell, that was a bit of overreach, and he knew it pretty much as soon as he said it.
1: Well, you know, Mark, what I would like to see, and I do think, in fact, the Parliamentary Budget Office and the Treasury, to their credit, they've released a couple of, of really detailed analytical papers. One about job seeker, who what's its cost, who has to pay, who has who has to use it. Another one about workforce participation broadly across the population. Both of those papers done by the bureaucracy have a lot of gender analysis in them. And they have to because mm. women and men are differently situated in the economy uh, and in terms of the social welfare system. So that's good news to me that actually what we start to see is a more serious analysis of the impact of uh, policies on women and men—these big-ticket policies—and uh, I'd like to see it housed in Treasury. So maybe we can see a shift of the, that that uh, that that money over to Treasury, out of out of the office for women.
0: It's a very real debate as to how much more we should do of this, whether we should have inequality impact statements, and obviously environmental impact statements, and social impact statements, and so on. Of making the political process and the policy process think about the broader consequences of an individual or a focused decision. Mm. Mm. You know, and it's a very big area, and it's inevitably, I think, it's going to become a big issue in uh, in government policy over time. Is looking at the impact of that on particular characterisations of the community.
2: Yeah, and and overall things like a well-being statement, mm. a, a frame of reference, uh, looking at the overall well-being of a community, for example, which I think they're experimenting within some places, New Zealand. perhaps. New Zealand's, New Zealand's, got Zealand's got a been doing budget, the well-being.
1: Yes budget that's right although again you, you can you can get lost in uh, I hate to say motherhood statements <laughs> That's <a> gendered <laughs> gendered term can't you so the, yeah. this is an ongoing challenge with with it but this is what Budgeting is supposed to be about this sort of political accountability and where the where the rubber hits the road.
2: Yeah, and especially not seeing as budgets budgets are full of assumptions. I mean, they sort of they're predicated on a whole series of assumptions all the time, and and some of those assumptions, in fact, all of them have had a gendered component that has been, uh, you know, not explicitly stated. And so addressing these things, uh, the impact of decisions, how they affect people, uh, it's, it makes a lot of sense. But of course, it's politically. Fraught, uh, particularly for for parties that are distant clients. Yeah, I mean, the big assumption
0: of, of this budget is, of course, that the virus behaves, yeah. and that uh, you know it does unfold as they hope. Well, and that we can open our borders and we can resume migration and Well, let's workers go to that so borders but, question. You know, it's a very, very difficult area to make an assumption. And each time they've had an economic statement that has made some sort of assumption about the virus behaving in the last 18 months, it hasn't.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, well, what do you think of the, uh, the, the statement that the border, the international border, won't open until sometime well into 2022? I mean,
1: well, that's what we're planning on in the university. We're certainly planning on the borders not opening until then, and it might even be longer. I I I the the virus is going to be really serious in in many countries globally where we want to have movement. Um, So I was a bit disappointed not to see funding for a federal quarantine centre myself.
0: Absolutely. I thought that was a big area they should have actually seized the opportunity, admittedly 12 or 14 months late, to say we are going to have... Uh, federally funded quarantine centres away from major capitals, and anyone who comes in is going to actually have to go there, whether they're uh, returning residents or well, we saw this we saw this debacle
2: with um, with India yeah. in the last few weeks, which was just no a confidence. disgrace. Um, mm. Really, uh, an admission that the quarantine system is not up to it, so that Australian citizens mm. um, aren't even owed. The attempt to look after their interests, uh, they're, they're in fact told, no, no, you're going to be committing a criminal offence subject to $66,000 fines, five-year jail terms. I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, The budget situation. does
0: allow for some of these mercy flights, I think, moving forward, but even over a 12- or 18-month period, you only bring back about half the people that mm. are stuck over there now. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an area that i was amazed they didn't address. I mean, I, I think they could have easily committed some money to quarantine. I know that me, admit it means that they have to admit they made a mistake, and that you know that they should have taken that responsibility from the beginning. But it is a constitutional. There's a lot of admis-
2: there's a lot of admissions of making a mistake in this budget <laughs> yeah. anyway. Really, yeah. I mean, the whole budget itself is a, is essentially a a yeah. change of direction for the conservative yeah, yeah. parties, uh, and of course, you know, the, the great success of public policy in the last twelve months is JobKeeper, which itself was repudiated as an idea when first suggested by by labor so to be fair to the government they've they've uh, been prepared to make a number of directional changes even on women uh, for example as we've just been discussing there are rhetorical uh, shifts as well as as well as hopefully followed up by substantial shifts um, but nonetheless I mean it seems to me you know Randy talked about universities but if you think about the universities and the tourism sector the hospitality sector these sectors are critical parts of the Australian economy uh, and critical parts of the story of regrowth.
1: The issue that's missing for me in terms of the borders, there's the issue of bringing Australian citizens home and and, and these are all political and obviously important, but the the economic issue is the integration of the Australian economy with the global economy Uh, and that involves the movement of people, whether it's students in universities, whether it's tourism, whether it's sort of trade and investment crossing the border. And the budget doesn't really... It doesn't really address that narrative. It just kind of assumes, as John said, that the assumptions will will take us, uh, you know, will somehow open up, rather than having a, a kind of active policy in that direction.
0: Yeah, the overseas forecasts that they've made are very casual. Just look at what they assume for India. And imagine whether that's a realistic assumption. I just think they played down the significance that in a country like Australia, which depends on being open, Mm. depends on globalization, free trade, capital movement, persons movement, and so on, all of that is taken for granted that that will be okay. And you look around the world and you see that they're in a very deep recession. Still, Europe is having negative growth numbers uh, in the first quarter of this year. Okay, the US is is going stronger than expected, but not consistently because you've had the last employment number called everyone by surprise, uh, There's a, it's going to be a rocky road globally against which we're going to be positioning ourselves and wanting to open our borders mm. quickly. But realistically, with the spread of the virus and the fact that it comes in waves of countries that have had it, let alone mm. the more broad-based spread to other parts of the world, I mean, it's ambitious to say we'll open in the middle of next year. Uh, I just don't see it, and I don't know how that will be managed given the experience with India that you mentioned.
2: Mm.
1: I think one of the things we can be proud of as Australians, and I guess, as you say, give credit to to this government and hopefully any political party in power would have done it, is that we have kept people alive. That's been a big uh, goal of our COVID-19 response. And and it really, it has worked. Uh, And, you know, the US is, as you say, John, economically recovering, but has had a very, very large number of COVID-19 deaths and will continue to have those deaths. Uh, And certainly India and Brazil are really looking pretty disastrous. I suppose the question becomes how can how does a budget respond to crisis so in terms of growing out of crisis, the other crisis that we haven't really talked about, John mentioned it at the beginning, is environmental sustainability. Yeah. And, and this is the other part of the budget that are, is, is most disappointing to me. We've got these long-term narratives on social policy to some extent, structural, but really not very much uh, recognising the environmental risks that Australia faces.
0: And you look at the, rec- the, the um, support that's being given in, the, in, in terms of the COVID a pandemic so far and prospectively, and say what percentage of that is actually green or to the environment or to the inevitable transition to a low carbon Australia. It's very small. Yet you go to a country like Canada where I'm told it's as high as seventy percent. You know, these these is a very big contrast of countries that are recognising this has to happen. And we're all way off the pace. The world is nowhere near achieving uh, the Paris of commitments, let alone uh, what that will mean. And yet Australia just has isolated itself from that debate. This was an opportunity in this budget to have actually done that. And there's a lot of growth in that. There's a lot of jobs in that. Hmm. And I'm surprised that they didn't recognise that. I know that you know they'd have to eat a fair bit of <laughs> grow to actually do that. But, I mean, bottom line is whoever's in government in the next few years is actually going to have to do it.
2: Yeah. And once again, I I suppose we see how parties are constrained by their own internal realities to some extent. Uh, I think they're asking their right wing or their conservatives to eat a fair bit of crow, as you put it around questions of debt, for example, which mm. we now know just extend out as far as the eye can see so i don 't know whether they could have also said to them while you 're there we 're going to be funding some of the you know we 're going to be doing some environmental projects for example, and funding them with borrowings as well i don 't so know don 't
0: support hitting them when they 're down
2: <laughs> i don 't know how Matt canavan and uh, Co would have would have handled that, but i mean they 're struggling as it is. I heard Matt oh. canavan say this morning that um, uh, you know, this debt is is intergenerational, and uh, of course, we're in an unstable world. We haven't seen—I think you said—we haven't seen debt like this since uh, World War II, and we could be on the cusp of World War Three. Not not wanting to sound too dramatic, he said. Yeah. Well,
1: that <laughs> seems a bit extreme. I would have thought the war he's not for, he's not addressing is the environmental challenge. Absolutely. And yeah. you know yeah. what's so ironic is to emphasise the intergenerational impact of debt without emphasising the intergenerational impact of the failure to do an energy transition Couldn't in a
2: careful more. way. Yeah, I, no, I think I, I absolutely agree too. One. One final thing, the intergenerational impact of unemployment. Um, this was one of the things that Wayne Swan was uh, desperate to stress through the GFC, try to avoid going into structural unemployment, double digit unemployment and and all of the sort of corrosive long-run social effects and and economic effects of that. This government's obviously doing exactly the same thing. It's now going for a, uh, you know, uh, an overt strategy of driving unemployment down. Uh, the the budget papers say four and a half percent. The Reserve Bank thinks it can go even lower. Some people are saying it could even end up with a with a three in front of it in the high threes. This is a pretty dramatic change for uh, for politics, really. And and in that sense, if it does happen. Uh, I guess can I get your both your impressions? Is that, can this be a structural change in the economy?
0: I think the employment situation is much more complicated than that overarching unemployment number suggests. I mean, we see circumstances where there are massive shortages of skills hmm. for jobs and many, many thousands of jobs. I mean, I uh, noticed some numbers yesterday: the number of chefs on jobs, uh, jobs uh, seek. Uh, dot com is over seven thousand. I can't find any. Yeah, uh, you know. And then if you add all the the support staff to a chef and the waitresses and so on, it's tens of thousands. And there's that is that big gap. So you've got sort of mismatches in terms of skills and, and jobs.
2: That's a big got, capacity constraint, isn't you've it? You've
0: really? got many more people looking for work, enough work. Let's say include underemployment as well yeah. as uh, as there are jobs available. Yet at the same time, the headline number will go down, yeah, and we'll feel because anyone it. who does
2: an hour's work essentially comes right. off the unemployment. So the list. nature of no. the
0: the, the labour market circumstances behind those numbers is so different. Behaviour has changed so much. Attitudes to work and travel have changed so much that uh, you know we've got to be careful that we don't just say credit for getting a number down. Yeah and actually leaving ourselves with a big structural, structural problem behind that.
1: I think that uh, what you point out, John, is, is right, that in order to really understand that unemployment number and what you might think of as work and industrial policy together, right, um, or mm. economic sector sort of policy, I suppose, you have to drill into the numbers. You have to actually ask where are people situated. Uh, it's a bit like the women's budget. What you're doing is inquiring about people in different areas of the economy who have different characteristics. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot of casual employment out there, there's a lot of um, underemployment but at the same time there's skills needs in different areas that are really different and perhaps this is more Labor's territory, the, the, this idea of a, a, a more concrete industrial policy that aims to to build waged employment in different sectors. it be interesting to see if the coalition comes up with some more on that before the election.
0: Yeah. The one thing that could undo all of this though is if inflation does actually accelerate. And, uh, you know, if you look at commodity price increases, and we make a lot of the iron ore price and the benefit to Australia, but look at the commodity price increases in the last 12 months and something like freight's gone up over 250%. uh, You know, these costs are going to flow through to measured consumer prices at some point. If that were to happen quicker... Than, uh, than governments are counting on, so that they have to respond to reemergence of inflation at a time where we're still trying to make these structural adjustments. It's going to be a very difficult management problem.
2: Perhaps another reason why they might uh, go to an election before any of that happens. Then. I'm sure that's their motivation. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, I <laughs> knew this was going to be an excellent discussion with such excellent guests, and it really has been. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I'm sure people listening will have enjoyed listening to your expertise deconstructing budget 2122. Uh, so. John Hewson, Miranda Stewart, thanks so much for being on Democracy Sausage. It's a
0: pleasure.
1: Thanks for having us, man.
2: And that's it for this week. Look forward to talking to you next week when we will have, uh, well, something else that I'm yet to decide about. So uh, look forward to talking to you then. Bye for now.